Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, January 16th, the Runaway Royals edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, author of the new book, Franchise, The Golden mm-hmm. Arches in Black America. In fact, Marcia's on her book tour right now. She's calling in from under a duvet in a <laughs> closet in a hotel room in Kansas City. So if she sounds like she's under a duvet, it's because she is. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thursday Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be back together. Hi. Happy yeah. New Year. Yeah, we <laughs> taped our early New Year episode actually in December. So we oh, haven't yeah. been in the same space together for like a month. It's crazy. Yeah, It's been yeah. a long time. Um, before we get started with our excellent show this week, um, we've got one order of business. June, what's up? I'm very glad to say that we have three copies of Marsha's fantastic, fascinating book, Franchise the Golden Arches in Black America, to give away. If you would like to throw your virtual hat into the virtual ring, please send an email with the word giveaway in the subject line. You don't need to write anything else if you don't want to, to thewaves at slate.com by midnight Eastern time on January 24th. We'll pick three winners at random and contact them by email to get a mailing address for the book. This giveaway is only open to US residents, no purchase necessary, void where prohibited. For complete rules, please go to this episode's page at slate.com slash the waves. Yeah, actually, I have read the book. I interviewed Marsha about it for what I humbly suggest is a riveting Q&A, which you can find now at Slate.com. Um, Marsha, why don't you tell us a little bit about Franchise? Franchise is the hidden history of the relationship between the civil rights movement and the rise of McDonald's in African-American communities. It's the sum total of decades-long obsession with why African-Americans often have such complicated relationships to fast food, a social history of our health crisis in America. And I think it's really a challenging look at how we can have a lot of mixed emotions about institutions, especially large corporations. I'm so excited that the book is out there and I've had such great responses and a lot of support. And I hope listeners who are able to get copies of Franchise enjoy it. I have not finished it yet, uh, but I'm really loving it. I was, I'll be honest, I know that you're a professor and I was afraid it might be (laughs) slightly academic and it is not at all academic, even though there are footnotes, which at first I'm like, well, I'm going to ignore those. And then there was just so interesting. I was like, well, just see what they're about. Um, so it's, I heartily recommend it too. I removed the elbow patches this time and <laughs> really tried to write a book that was deeply historical, but narrative enough for people to learn new things, but also invest in the people they learn about. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. All right. First up on this week's show, we're going to discuss the recent and ongoing, I'll call it a mini drama between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, He allegedly told her he didn't think a woman could win the presidency. That's what was reported. He denies it. They talked about it at the debate. We're going to talk about it. Then Megxit, the other biggest news story that's been uh, capturing our attention this week, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry 
have announced a partial departure from the monarchy. What does it mean? How should we feel? And finally, we're going to talk about a new book, Women on Food, and we'll discuss the ways gender and race affect our experiences of dining out. Then for our Slate Plus listeners, we have an exclusive Is It Sexist segment. We have a great question from a reader, Nicole. Why don't you tell us about that question? Sure. We're going to ask, is it sexist that a set of grandparents um, refuse to do the intricate hair maintenance routine of their biracial grandson? Such a good question. Here's a little snippet of that conversation. Yeah, so I, I just I think it is sexist and I, I will uh, I will accept Christina's term of racial ignorance because, again, <laughs> I don't want to put, you know, you know, people get very I don't want to put racist and racism on something that obviously may not be the case, but clearly is a lack of education and maybe just a lack of willingness to be educated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, it does sound a little bit like, I, you know, this was a racially tinged incident. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exclusively I don't wanna... gay incident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you should start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. It's only $35 for your first year. No excuses. All right. Warren and Sanders. On Monday, CNN reported with accounts from four sources that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders had a meeting in December 2018 where Sanders told Warren that he didn't think a woman could win the 2020 presidential election. Warren confirmed the report. She said, I thought a woman could win. He disagreed. Sanders has repeatedly denied it. He said, what I did say that night was that Donald Trump is a sexist, a racist, and a liar who would weaponize whatever he could. He also said the sources who told CNN about it were lying about what happened. His campaign manager said the same thing. It's a lie. Bernie Sanders has always stood for women and women's rights. Then at Tuesday night's debate, we're recording the morning after the debate, uh, both candidates were asked about it. Sanders said, look on YouTube, you're going to find a video of me 30 years ago saying a woman could be president. And in 2015, people were trying to get Warren to run. I stood back and said, I won't run for the 2016 nomination if you do. I support women. You know, people have been talking about, are they lying? Are they not? It seems like maybe one of them is lying. But I actually think it's possible that he said something about how a woman candidate would be subject to uh, sexist attacks like Hillary Clinton was and maybe have a harder time winning because of that. And Elizabeth Warren heard it as, you know, a woman can't win. I think both of them could be telling some version of the truth. So instead, I want to focus on the idea that a woman can't win because contrary to what Sanders said in the debate, he said, you know, it's preposterous that I would think that no one thinks a woman can't become president. You know, a lot of people do worry about that. I th- I think it's it's a, a thing that is on a lot of people's minds. And certainly I've read an interminable number of news stories quoting people who think that a woman can't win the presidency. So this was initially going to be an is it sexist segment, but then we decided to, you know, draw it out into the full thing. So I do want to ask you guys, do you think it's sexist, you know, if Bernie Sanders did say that he thinks a woman can't win the presidency? Well, I think it's sexist for anyone to say that. Um, and, you know, I know it's sexist, but I think there's also this fear that we have in general as human beings of 
of throwing our hat into the losing person's mm-hmm. ring or a corner or whatever the analogy would be for that. <laughs> um, and so I think people, a lot of people don't want to um, take a stand until they know that the, their, their candidate is actually going to win um, or at least has a you know substantial chance at winning. So I think that's mostly what's at the heart of this, but there's definitely some bias and just a lack of imagination about who could possibly win. And people are just afraid, I think, of even more change. You know, having a black man in the office has, um, you know, the fear from that and the and the stupidity that has come from that, you know, lands us kind of where we are now. And so I think people are afraid, well, what the hell is going to happen if we have a woman in office who's going to come after her? You know, um, I mean, I don't think too many people are thinking that far ahead, mm-hmm. but there's very much a possibility as people try to overcorrect or whatever. So I think mm-hmm. all of that combines, um, you know, to form people's Again, just fear about what's going to happen if a woman's in the presidency. Um, Because really, I mean, if you get down to the facts of what a woman could do, there's no reason that we would be any worse off (laughs) than where we are now. (laughs) And it just becomes this very illogical women are emotional, like we don't have someone, an emotional brat in the office right now, you know, those kinds of silly things happening. So, yeah, I think it's just a bunch of stuff, but it is sexist overall. Well, I think that statement has, has, there's two ways of like reading the tone into it. I don't think a woman will become president as a way of indicting the, the voting public for being too misogynistic or too sexist to allow their imaginations to vote for a woman. But I think the problem is that there is a large segment of the population that cannot imagine being um, ruled by a woman, right? So I don't think a woman can become president, can either be an indictment or a declaration of commitment to sexism. So it gets really, really hard to understand where that comes from. And this election cycle is so incredibly fueled with anxiety because Donald Trump is so terrible Mm -hmm. and the Democratic Party doesn't seem to really have the capacity to create mechanisms to cultivate talent to get them to that next level to challenge Trump. But to be very honest... I was one of those people who did not think Obama would be able to pull this off. I thought the nation was far too racist to imagine a black president. But what I think Obama did so effectively was he just outmaneuvered some of the mechanisms that could have barred him from the White House. And I think that Warren has the capacity to do something similarly. But again, I... I think it's really, really difficult in this election cycle to take any kind of rational assessment of people's decisions because people are so afraid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you look at all of the candidates, there's something that you could say about all of them. Is this kind of person electable, whether it's like a very old kind of frail seeming person who doesn't seem completely like together, of course, I'm thinking of Joe Biden. Of a Who are you very, talking about? Oh, I, th- I thought you were talking about Bernie Sanders. Well, and also another 78 year old man who I also have felt 
and I am not Jewish, but like America won't vote for a socialist. America won't vote for a Jew. America won't vote for a 78 year old guy or a gay man who actually at this point seems like the least, uh, you know, like which is crazy to me. Um, Yeah, it's not like all the others are just slam dunks, you know. Mm -hmm. So this whole electability question, which I absolutely agree with you, Marcia, it is. I think it's the one question that we're that everyone is asking right now. And I know feminists, people, progressives, women who've said, you know, I worry that a woman can't be elected. It's something that a lot of people who don't who want to vote for a woman worry about. But like you said, Marsha, we I worried about that with, with Obama and, you know, he won twice. And see, that's so frustrating for me as a person that, um, I mean, I have a lot of fears and insecurities and then I just have to like leap. Mm-hmm. And I wish that everybody would take that jump and just just mm-hmm. vote, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, mm-hmm. and, and, <laughs> and whether, you know, it's OK to be afraid, but still vote. You know, you don't have to vote for your second choice just because you're for your first choice won't win. I don't yeah. understand that. But yeah. I also think it's interesting that people usually only talk about electability when they're talking about people's identities. They don't talk about it in terms of their policies Mm -hmm. or their temperament or their resumes. And I think it's a very limiting and inaccurate way of assuming the way voters will behave or making assumptions about the way voters will behave. I just wrote a piece. This is a little lead into a piece that I wrote um, (laughs) about how everyone assumes that, you know, oh, well, Warren's going to have an advantage with women voters or Cory Booker's going to have an advantage with black voters and Mayor Pete's going to have an advantage with LGBTQ voters. And what this very diverse Democratic slate, which is getting increasingly less diverse Mm -hmm. as we go on, has shown us is that that's actually not a good way to look at the way people behave. You know, Warren, yes, is maybe disproportionately popular among women, but not by that much. And that effect completely goes away when you count out white women. She's only disproportionately popular among white women. Uh, Joe Biden is way disproportionately popular among black voters. He's clearly not black. And not only that, he certainly is not the most convincing orator on the topic of racial justice. Um, So I think people take a lot of different inputs into their minds when they're deciding who to support. Another thing that Obama's election should have taught us, and it seems to be a lesson people haven't taken away from it, is that people are very concerned with perceived electability and they can have their minds changed. You know, when Mm -hmm. Obama, it wasn't until Obama won the Iowa caucuses that Black voters felt comfortable supporting him because they, you know, having the experience of racism in America were even more concerned than white people, it seemed, that America couldn't elect a black president. And now, you know, Obama won twice by very high margins. And still, it seems like people believe that white men are more electable than, you know, people of color and women. You know, we don't have data to support the fact that a woman could be elected president because a woman hasn't been elected president. But I don't even think that once we do elect a woman president, which I think we will someday, I don't think people will be able to even internalize that as like, oh, see, we can elect women because we haven't learned that election from Barack Obama. I did appreciate in the debate that Warren tried to bring facts into the discussion because it's so easy to have this discussion completely in the abstract without Mm. because, you know, like I said, a woman hasn't been elected president yet. But she came in and made the argument for her own electability with facts. Here's a clip of that moment. 
This question about whether or not a woman can be president has been raised, and it's time for us to attack it head on. Um, and I think the best way to talk about who can win is by looking at people's winning record. So can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. <laughs> the only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy so and true. me. So I liked this a lot because I think, you know, by traditional measures, yes, a woman and a democratic socialist would be running long shot races or or at the very least unprecedented races. But what that demands is not sort of cowardice or capitulation to America's worst biases, mm -hmm. but just creativity, you know, courage and creativity. There was a really great piece in The Atlantic by uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote that we should be reframing or refocusing the narrative of the swing voter, that you don't have to focus on capturing sexist people yeah. or, you know, white sort of racist people or centrists. You can instead focus on capturing the people who Obama really excited, you know, young voters of color, basically people who voted in 2008 and 2012, but not 2016. I think that it is sexist and racist that people are so focused on taking people away from Donald Trump instead of focusing on people whose interests have been ignored by both parties. This is what I thought was the potential of Kamala Harris that I think her campaign didn't have the capacity to develop was the idea that a black woman, I think, could win the presidency if her campaign was able to bring new voters to the table and some of the, you know, swing voters that Kendi talks about in that article, people who disengage but can be animated back into voting. And I don't think they were ever able to really do that. And so the question of can a woman get elected, I think also has to be contextualized with um, voter discrimination and voter suppression. Mm -hmm. Because... The reality of a person winning more of the popular vote and still not winning the presidency, I think, shapes a lot of the ways that we speculate about what's possible. And so I'm always really uncomfortable with conversations about 2016 that suppose that it was voters of color who lost it for Clinton because they didn't turn out or there was some type of failure on the part of the American people to imagine a woman president in light of the voter malfeasance that happened. And I think that that's always an asterisk on this conversation. And so to say that the person who can beat Trump is the white candidate, I think also nods to the fact that white votes matter more than any other votes. And those are the votes that will get counted and respected and have the resources for robust voter turnout. Yeah. And as a lot of people have pointed out, um, including Bernie Sanders at the debate, a woman did win the popular vote in 2016. Mm -hmm. A woman did get three million votes more than the 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 guy who was crowned, who was <laughs> invested, whatever the term we use in this country. Um, I also just want to mention um, a, a line from a great piece by Lily Loughborough in Slate, who said, 
Can Americans overcome a documented habit of finding stupid and greedy men more qualified than women with expertise and experience? Um, that's a pretty good question. Great question. Uh, I hope the answer is uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's not sexist to worry about sexism. It right. is sexist to use that as a reason to convince a woman that she can't win. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay, that's about all the time we have for this mini drama. Uh, I'm sure the question of female electability won't be going away anytime soon. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Okay. Our next topic is Megxit. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. So last week, the American princess Meghan Markle and her husband, Prince Harry, announced they'd be stepping back from some of their duties in the royal family. June, our royal correspondent, <laughs> uh, what's happening here? And why should we care? Wow. I'm, I'm actually, wait, that's news? I hadn't heard that. I'm so shocked. It feels like it's been so undercovered. I just feel yeah, like we just haven't really grappled with it. It's really been, you know, it was sort of like an, an underground sensation. Yeah. You might not have even heard of them before. It was very subfusk. Um, yeah. I mean, I think of her as still as Rachel Zane, but I guess now yeah. she's the Duchess that? of Sussex. That's her role from Suits. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you watched Suits. Yeah, yeah, yeah for many I seasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I still watched it when Mike had a great memory. They kind of forgot that toward the end, which is ironic, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Anyway. All right, back to Meg's. <laughs> back to, back to Meg's. <laughs> I think that's the only part of this that hasn't been over-discussed. Um, so, yes, uh, as you point out, uh, Christina, uh, last week in what was a bombshell, bombshell, that was the, the word of choice, the, the Sussexes uh, launched their new website, uh, which I believe is called <gasps> a website sussexroyal.com um, <laughs> and they kind of took a, a page out of the like the new playbook for entertainment stars and like broke their own news they didn't wait for it to to get a cover story they didn't wait for the press to do this they made an announcement on their own time in their own terms that said we have chosen to make a transition this year in starting to carve out a progressive new role within this institution, that institution being the royal family. We intend to step back as senior members of the royal family and work to become financially independent while continuing to fully support Her Majesty the Queen. There were some issues with the title casing there, but I'm not going to get I'm not going to get bogged down in that. Um I think the problem is that despite the chronic overcoverage of this, 
We still don't really know exactly what they mean because it is really hard to know. They, you know, especially um, Harry, he was born into this family. It's not like it was a job he uh, applied for. He was kind of stuck in it from birth. That's the nature of hereditary monarchy. There aren't really appropriate precedents for just deciding not to take part. At the same time, I think there's something in the language of that announcement that kind of gets to the point of it, that they talk about carving out a progressive new role. Like, they're the woke royals, and it's really hard to be progressive, to not be caught in some really shitty historical colonial stuff if you go along with the you know the, the path as it's always been taken. And as many people have pointed out, including a really, I thought, exemplary piece in BuzzFeed recently, I think over last weekend, the way that the British press, specifically the British tabloids, have covered the Sussexes is incredibly racist. I don't think there's anything controversial about that. The British tabloids are racist. The way they cover Meghan Markle is racist. And um, the way that the exact same things that she does were treated uh, as negative and crazy. And when William's wife uh, did exactly the same thing. William's wife is white, by the way. They would, they, everything was valorized and positive. It was just like this was a very stark contrast. There is no doubt about this. And so there's no surprise to me that they want to get out of there. But it's not really as easy as just saying, I want to get out of here. What they, you know, for one thing, they need really extensive security in part because of the racism, but also in part because they are incredibly famous, incredibly uh, from, in his case, an extraordinarily rich family that could pretty much, you know, uh, British money has his grandmother's face on it. Like she's guaranteeing the money. There's quite a lot of, uh, of, of cash involved here. So their security is really something that you kind of have to spend a lot of money on. But who is going to be spending that money? It's There's just a lot of questions and not all that many answers. Before we move on, June, can you just give us one or two examples of the difference in the way the press covered Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton? Because I knew that they had been covered differently and mm-hmm. that the British tabloid press had treated her with incredible racism, but it wasn't until I read that piece in BuzzFeed that it it I really understood how terrible it was. Yeah, I mean, again, I just really recommend people go check it out. There'll be a link on our show page. But for example, two were making exactly the same gesture. When they were pregnant, they both touched their bump, which I think actually is impossible to avoid. I mean, it's just there. I don't know how you would not touch it. Um, and when Kate did it, it was, I don't even remember the, the exact terms, but like loving and, 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 you know, just great. Oh, she's so ready to be a mom. And with Megan, it was just like, what was it like? egotistical she was a narcissist narcissist do you have to show us your baby bump all the time like (laughs) it's crazy meanwhile look at literally any picture of a pregnant woman yes that's just like that's just the human body another was apparently when they were pregnant they both they both ate avocados as some kind of counter Mm -hmm. to morning sickness I Mm -hmm. guess pregnancy sickness and when Kate did it it was oh you know trying new things great oh that's awesome and then when Megan did it it was basically crazy yeah they said um, her love of avocado toast uh, is a part of a murder like she she was like yeah like avocados are murdering causing drought and child (laughs) abuse and Uh, yeah I mean it was it just the starkness of the contrast was 
just it it was just so mind blowing and and just really a great digging a great piece. One of the threads that um, <laughs> makes me laugh uh, in the way that people are reacting. There's um, one group of. British press and, you know, the, the people who are responding uh, just in general, they're like, well, what does she expect? Why, you know, she should have expected racism. And then there's another that's like, what? <laughs> Britain, we don't have racism over here. We're not Americans. So w- <laughs> which which is it? And, you know, should she have expected racism from England or should she have not? Like, what, what are you trying to say? Because clearly there's racism. And, I, you know, it's I don't really want to get into this whole like colorism thing right now but Megan um, is as fair-skinned a black person as you can be and for someone to then look at her and then you know create this caricature of Archie as a monkey I'm just like how deep is your racism that you would do that you know and then expect her to be okay with it and you could tell Uh, that she, I don't want to say she had a difficult pregnancy because obviously we don't know what went on with her pregnancy. But even when we finally saw her after she had delivered Archie, she was clearly shell-shocked a little bit. Like she was still, I mean, this was her first baby, you know? And so I think that she was not allowed to experience that, to settle in with that in the same way that maybe Kate was. But looking at all of this, Another thing that surprises me is the fact that in their statement, they say explicitly that they're trying to become financially independent. And then all these people are like, well, good luck getting a job and good luck, you know, having money if you're not a part of the royal family and all this kind of stuff. And like, get you know, give us pay back the money. There's people like pay back the money. Like, uh, hello, why doesn't England, you know, now you guys know about reparations, right? This This is what's happening here. But that's what they're trying to do. And let's not act like people aren't going to be throwing money at them for just showing up to present an award or something. Or, you know, there's rumors that Megan is going to be doing voiceover work or something like that. And no, it's not as much as what's in the coffers, you know. Duchy of of, of, of Cornwall. (laughs) Right. But still, let's not act like they're going to be destitute, you know. So I just, it's just really strange, the reactions. This is obviously what they wanted, but I guess... They just did not understand that Harry is not going to leave his wife, that he actually loves her. And so um, when I say this is what they wanted, this is what people, other people who were attacking Megan, they wanted her gone. And now she's leaving and they're like, wait, how dare you leave when we wanted to kick you out? You know, (laughs) just relax about it. I think if you take a step back from the situation, there's a few things that I think are relatable to poppers and everyday people like ourselves. And I think their relationship exposes the ways that in some families, um, marrying across um, racial lines or social lines or building queer families can lead to this type of alienation in which the family is generally okay, but I think for the partner certain partners and families realize the loss of social capital because of Mm -hmm. who their spouse is. Mm -hmm. And I think that in this situation, the public is watching this type of unraveling that happens in a smaller scale in neighborhoods and schools and churches. I know a number of people from multiracial families who told me growing up in their town that people will talk to one parent but not the other, Mm -hmm. that you know, they were really very much alienated as 
the mixed race family. And so in this weird way, I think that Harry is experiencing something that a lot of people are experiencing and his choice to turn his back on his family in this way is really powerful. And I guess there's a part of me that loves the palace intrigue portion of it because it's great gossip. But there's also this deep sadness because Mm -hmm. he makes it very explicit. The reason why they're making some of these choices is because of the way his mother was hounded and killed. Mm -hmm. And there's a way that I feel like the royals have a real opportunity to seem like real people in acknowledging the deep grief and pain of Princess Diana's family, of her children, and how that animates their choices. And I think that narrative only works when they say, you know, they want to continue their mother's legacy in public service and charity and philanthropy. But the real legacy is their attempts to be like free and choosing their family and choosing to live in a way that honors those bonds. And I think that narrative goes into things that are so deep about the system that that conversation seems to be had a lot in the U.S. press, but I don't think the British press is willing to say those things. Yeah. One thing that I that excites me about this is the way it complicates the sort of princess narrative, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., where I feel that Meghan Markle is a more um, realistic uh, lens into what it's like to be in the royal family than some of the other depictions that Americans have seen, especially because she's American. And, you know, she and Harry have made painfully clear that being a princess is not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, and it's hard, I think, for normal people, paupers in in <laughs> Marsha's parlance, uh, to internalize the fact that Fame sucks and is suffocating. And, you know, it's very hard to live any sort of normal life. You know, we can talk all we want about like, oh, go cry into your pile of money in your palace. But it's for somebody who, in Harry's case, didn't even choose that life for himself. You know, it's it's a little bit unfair to expect that because they get money from British taxpayers that they should be, you know, available all the time. I have to say this situation, the Megxit situation has really forced me to learn a little bit more about exactly how it all works. One thing I didn't know about was the Royal Rota, which Mm. is sort of like a White House pool where there's a group of reporters, you know, they sort of take turns having access to various events and then they share the photos and the information with all the other British reporters who have access to the royal family. I think there's maybe six publications who have access. Well, actually, let me, I'm just going to jump in there and and I apologize for that, but there are seven publications and it is appalling what they are. There are four tabloids, only one of which is not explicitly Tory, two Tory broadsheets, and then a London evening paper uh, that is edited by a former Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer. Like, this is, like, yes, we think of it as a pool system, but it is a very biased pool system, Mm -hmm. which reflects the biased British press and the nature of a capitalist press. But, like, it's it's a terrible, terrible system. And are the Tories more sympathetic to the royals? Yeah, they're, they, they are more monarchist, generally speaking, whereas, uh, you know, socialists tend to be more Republican in that sense. But um, it, it's, more, it's more just about the, the um, you know, sticking up for the status quo, the establishment, the, yeah. the monarchy, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very transactional sort of relationship where Mm -hmm. the monarchy seems to be justifying its continued, um, you know, siphoning off of British tax dollars by saying, look, you get access to us and it's so good for tourism. And, you know, don't you love reading all these stories about us? Um, And now Harry and Meghan are opting out of that. And like you said, June, it's hard to understand at this point what it means, but they— take great pains on their website to say, oh, you know, the the money we're giving up, the the tax dollars, only covers 5% of our expenses. So it's really not that much money. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, as much as I am so glad that they're stepping away from the royal family in any capacity, because I think it's it's probably terrible for them, and it's certainly an unjustifiable system— I have to say, I would be a lot more sympathetic if they blamed the monarchy and the the Mm -hmm. system which they're going to continue to profit from for all of their protests that they're not, in addition to blaming the press, because they're just 100% blaming the press. And it seems like they're just relinquishing 5% of their income in exchange for not having to go in front of this, you know, horrible pool of reporters who treat them in, in completely racist and sexist ways. But, Christina, don't you think the real price is the awkward family holidays? (laughs) (laughs) You have to wear a kilt, you know. Kind of alienation from his brother, the good object versus bad object that's happening between Meghan and Kate. I mean, I I hear your point 100%, but I think the the calculation um, is also about this idea of family alienation. I wonder about the Queen's reaction, and I'm thinking about it because of The Crown, the series on Netflix, and the way that she... So glad we watched that. (laughs) And the way that she has been portrayed, and our question about, is this propaganda to make her look good? And then the fact that, you know, when this first came out, um, there was this idea that Harry and Meghan had not talked to the Queen about what was going on. And then it came out that, no, they had tried and had been, you know, kind of pushed to the side for a little bit. And then they were just like, you know, fuck it, we have to we have to push this. Um, and so now the Queen has been like, OK, let's compromise. Let's talk. Let's compromise. I'm going to work with you. She has agreed to a period of transition um, is the language right now. And so I wonder if between the crown and this and whatever else may be going on that I am not privy to as a dumb American, if she realizes that maybe the the monarchy does have to progress and does have to change as, as you know, we move on. And, you know, she is now 92, 93. I believe, 93. And so maybe she kind of wants a little bit to see something happening. I, you know, I'm yeah, projecting, yeah. but, you know, maybe she wants to see something happen that she didn't get to experience before she leaves this earth. I don't I don't know, but I'm I'm very curious about her yeah. response and the what we're supposed to take from her response and how we're supposed to think of her. Yeah, I mean we'll never know because that's what it, right. it, she's a complete cipher. Although I do think and I'm just projecting that there is something about Megan like you cannot have a lily white royal family for what is not a white country. I mean, never was, but certainly is in no way now. That is not acceptable. That is not possible. The monarchy cannot survive as an all-white institution in a multiracial country. And so you have your first non-white person, possibly, in the family. 
and they're treated like that, like you can't let that happen and have this institution stand. So even though it is just projection on my part, it does seem like she she can't let that happen. Yeah. She can't stand for that. I'm excited for season 20 of The Crown oh where Meghan Markle plays herself <laughs> in it. Yes. Oh, man. Bring Although it. she'll be 20 years older. Oh, the I magic mean, great. Of- more, more roles for women over 40. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, we could talk about this for an entire episode, but I think we have to wrap it up now. Listeners, what roles do you want to see Meghan Markle play now that she's free to earn her own money? <laughs> what startups would you like to see Harry invest in and join the board of? Uh, you can email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right. Our last segment for this episode is about women on food, featuring the voices of more than 100 female chefs and critics and other folks in the food industry. Uh, it was edited by Charlotte Druckmann. It came out in October. And it's a very sort of weighty and meaty, pardon the pun, <laughs> book. So we're just going to discuss a part of it. And Marsha, in, in a, you know instance of pure coincidence, this <laughs> resonates a lot with stuff you talk about in your book. So so why don't you take us into the segment? Absolutely. So this new edited collection, Women on Food, looks at the various dimensions of women working as um, preparers of food, servers of food, folks who shill food on TV networks. And it looks at the ways that not only gender, but gender and race, as well as other factors of identity, shape how we look at... Um, food and an experience of dining. And one of the things I love about this volume is that it really exposes this weird way that you can also see this in fashion, that although there's a way that cooking within the household is often gendered female, the heights of the culinary industries are incredibly male-dominated. And in the same way that everyday sewing is considered a feminized task in the home, all the fashion houses and a lot of the d- the top designers are men. And so this collection really gives you an opportunity to kind of reflect on how you look at food and how you look at people who represent fine dining and who's not visible in that frame. Yeah, I I mean, I could we could, again, spend a whole episode talking about this collection because there's so much in it. Um, but one piece we wanted to discuss was an essay by Osei Endelin, which was excerpted in The Washington Post about the experience of being a black woman in fine dining establishments. And she describes it as feeling like she's part of other people's show. Mm -hmm. So she gets the sense that people feel like she doesn't belong in some way and so sort of have to address her, whether it's a server or a bartender giving her unsolicited recommendations for more accessible, quote-unquote, beers or something, or, or maybe other patrons complimenting her on the bourbon she orders. And I think another way that I've sort of experienced what she's talking about, obviously it's not, you know, the exact same, but the way she describes it as a show seemed very accurate to me, where part of eating out is often that, you know, you want to see or be seen or experience the performance of your servers or being with other patrons in a restaurant is part of the appeal of going out. Otherwise, in some cases, you might just order takeout or cook at home. Mm-hmm. I thought the piece really shown when she talked about the way 
we interpret other people we're eating with, especially mm-hmm. when we feel like they don't belong. This piece really resonated with me for two reasons. One, as someone who's on the road a lot and does dine out, um, I am very sensitive when menus are over-explained to me hmm. because I think that the implication is I, I won't know what the foods are. And she writes about that. And my sister is a sommelier, and she's one of the few Black women who's really at the top of her game in the wine and spirits industry. And a large part of what she does is tries to make these connections in the industry, but people don't see her as an expert. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we'll go out to dinner and it's just painful watching waiters try to convince her something about wine that is not accurate (laughs) and not realize the knowledge that she has. And I think for Black food critics, it's really hard because... When they're evaluating a dining service, they're evaluating the quality of the service. And we know that Black diners, especially in these types of restaurants, are often given really poor service. And so it it becomes a type of writing that's really, really layered and complicated for Black food writers. Mm. Yeah, this, um, I felt like... I could have written this essay myself without obviously the same level of expertise when it comes to talking about food or whatever. But I am a single child-free woman. Sometimes I get tired of my own company and I want to go out and to eat at a restaurant. I don't have a problem eating by myself. I like to go to the movies by myself. I, I just I love that experience. But, you know, I will have my book with me or, you know, in more recent years, my iPad to read on my, um, you know, my e-reader or whatever. And it's very clear that I'm just there to enjoy my own company. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people, almost always other white patrons who decide to they want to talk to me and figure out why I'm here by myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I have had uh, when I go into a restaurant and there's like a black hostess. I had her be very effusive about asking me why I'm there by myself. And the last time this happened, she was just like, oh, so are you treating yourself? Uh, no, I just want to eat. <laughs> you know, I guess if that's a treat, sure. Um, but I have had those experiences where people try to overexplain something or talk down to me. Uh, in the last month, I went to a bar and I ordered a wine. It was a bar restaurant, you know, relatively fancy, a nice little quote unquote date spot. And I was there with one of my friends and I ordered a glass of wine and the first sip. Um, and I don't know if this is the correct term for this, but the first sip was just a mouthful of sediment it was just like the dregs of the bottle and so I said you know I was like can you take this back and pour me another glass and I explained and she was just oh well this is a natural wine and so it's gonna have I was like no I've had natural wine you know and I'm telling her this is not what's supposed to happen and she Mm -hmm. just kept repeating it's a natural wine like I'm stupid Mm -hmm. no I'm Mm -hmm. fucking 42 I've had wine before (laughs) I know what it's supposed to taste like I'm not supposed to have a mouthful of bottle crumbs (laughs) when I'm drinking wine and so those kinds of things so in my my experience as a black woman dining alone I either get um, the wait staff or the bartender who ignores me and barely wants to acknowledge that Mm -hmm. I'm there and Mm -hmm. it's just like what's your order or the person who you know thinks that 
my Caesar salad is very complicated and has to break it down to me. <laughs> so I I completely feel this. In Indolin's essay, she you know pushes back on this woman who is like, well, I just want you to try this salad. It's got beets in it, and and the you know she pushes back, and the woman is like, well, you are righteous, which is you know a coded way of saying you're an uppity Negro. Um, why don't you just accept my you know, intrusive behavior, uh, which is ridiculous. But I've definitely had those experiences. And I wish that, you know, in this age of social media, we see where a lot of times white people have a real problem with black people just existing. And I wish that people, if you see me eating at a restaurant and I'm by myself and I have a book and I'm okay, or I have a journal and I'm writing or something, you can just leave me alone. You know, if you're another patron, obviously, if you're the wait staff or whatever, <laughs> don't please, you, you know, please be attentive. Attentive and, you know, in the same way that you're attentive to the other patrons. But before you approach that person by themselves who is dining alone, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender presentation, ask yourself, why do you feel the need to encroach? Yeah. I mean, it is about belonging, isn't it? About it's like people by either explicitly or implicitly suggesting that certain people don't belong and they need special help, special support yeah. to, to be in this place. This piece also reminded me of feelings I've had sometimes, whether it's because, you know, I'm with a group of people people who are dressed really interestingly because mm -hmm. my friends are super fashionable <laughs> or like, you know, because I'm queer and we bring a lot of like gender nonconforming energy into a space um, that sometimes I get the feeling like the, like when people come and chat to us, it's because they feel like our presence is making their experience more interesting. Mm -hmm. Like I remember one time we had um, my partner's birthday party at a bar and one of our friends had a very fortuitous gift bestowed upon her that morning in the trash room of her apartment <laughs> building. Someone had left a bag full of 40 rainbow colored iridescent fanny packs. <laughs> Which I'm As like, were did. they infested with bed bugs? Like, why would somebody be getting rid of those? Anyway, she brought them all to the bar and was like giving them out as sort of like a fun, like, oh, we're all out for someone's birthday. Let's wear these free fanny packs that somebody <laughs> left in her apartment building. And this straight couple who was next to us and, you know, out for a quiet drink was sort of watching us and like kind of amused and smiling. And then the woman came over and she's like, can I have one of those fanny packs? And then asked to take her picture with us. <laughs> and I felt like, am I, like, a performing for you right now? Like, we're having a birthday party for somebody, mm -hmm. having fun on our own. Like, and, and like you said, Nicole, I think that the sort of default response to seeing somebody who's, like, grabbing your attention for one reason or another should be, I'm not going to talk to them. And I, I think that, like, our happiness and joy and the fact that we were taking pictures with each other somehow gave her permission to feel like she could be part of it, too, just because we were in the same space. And in Endelin's essay, she talks about being alone at a bar and a group of women who were like, well, why don't you just stay with us at the bar when she was intending on bringing her <laughs> meal back to her room? And, like, the idea that just because you're in public, other people have the right to chat to you because you seem more interesting than whoever they're with um, <laughs> seems like a, a not entirely universal experience, but one that manifests in a lot of different ways with a lot of different kinds of people. Yeah. To kind of maybe bring it back around to Marsha's book in a certain way, I'm very conscious as a white woman that many of the times when I have 
you know, I'm not going to say stepped into other people's shoes, but gotten a taste of how other people are treated is when I've been in a restaurant or a bar of, you know, not getting seated, not getting good service, especially if you happen to be with uh, a person of weight uh, who's a, also a person of color. Good luck getting a seat then and certainly one <laughs> where, mm. where you're not going to uh, be in, you know, right next to the lavatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, if you are ever in a group speaking Spanish, believe me, you will be asked to stop. To, you know, to, to bring yes. your volume down. And so it's in a way it's it's been somewhere where I've kind of got a sense of how other people's lives. And I think, you know, it's a place of public accommodations. That's the nature of restaurants and bars and drive throughs and, and fast food restaurants. Like there are places that that where we interact with other people, with people who are many of them like us, many of them not like us. And, and it's, you know, it's one of those places where we rub up against each other. One of the things I found in doing research for my book was um, talking to African-Americans of a certain generation, people who are now in their 60s and 70s, and asking them about their experiences of going out to eat. And they would say, well, we just didn't do that mm. because we didn't know how we would be treated or we would be allowed to sit. And that's part of the appeal of fast food was that Mm. when fast food restaurants opened in African-American neighborhoods, even though it wasn't fancy or the food wasn't amazing, they knew that these were places that they could be served and treated a certain way. And last night I did a book talk and a woman came up to me and she said she remembers the first time she went to a McDonald's because she was from the deep South and they never were allowed to go out and she wanted to get ice cream, but her grandmother didn't want her to use the colored only window. So her grandmother learned how to make homemade ice cream so that the kids didn't have to experience that. And she said, I remember moving to Kansas City and there was a Black-owned McDonald's in my neighborhood and being so excited to go. And, you know, she was in her 20s at the time. And so I think that these instances in which people sometimes have a tendency to brush off to say, well, that was just what rude waiter or waitress, or you're being very sensitive about people just being friendly. I think they forget the context in which being out in public for a lot of people for various reasons creates a lot of anxiety and fear and disappointment when it can't be a special experience. Right. I think that's all the time we have for this book. Again, it's called Women on Food, edited by Charlotte Druckmann. Listeners, if any of the stories we've talked about resonated with you? Have you experienced anything like this? Has someone tried to take one of your fanny packs? Email us at thewaves@slate.com. Recommendation time. Who wants to start? Uh, I can start. So I was on the Culture Gab Fest this week. Check it out. I watched 63 Up because it was one of the pieces of culture that we were discussing. And um, for those who aren't familiar, it's a series of films uh, directed by Michael Apted. It follows a number of British people who started when they were seven and then every seven years they've revisited this group and, you know, checked in on them, followed their lives. It's this amazing longitudinal study, really, uh, as well as being quite entertaining. Now, it has some very serious limitations that as time has passed, I think of, of you know, at this point, it's it's you can say this definitely would not have been the group that was selected if you were starting this series now. It does reflect, I think, attitudes at the time. Um, it was very much focused on the on class differences. So they were very careful to have people from sort of different ends of Britain's class 
spectrum, some very posh people, some uh, so almost cartoonishly working class people from the east end of, of London and not very many people in the middle and only one person of color uh, in the entire group, only four women. But it's really interesting. I mean, first of all, it's an amazing project. It's just fascinating. But one of the things that I really enjoyed in 623 Up was seeing one of the women who's kind of, you know, gotten a reputation at this point because she's now brought it up a few times of confronting Apted about his own biases, his own implicit biases and pointing out, as she's done now several times, that when you started this project, the only thing you asked the girls about was relationships. You never asked hmm. them about work. You never asked them about any attitudes other than what they interpreted, although he claims he didn't mean it, as like saying, did you sleep with enough men before you got married? And to me, that has become really interesting, even though the number of, you know, there were only four women to begin with. The number of women participating has actually shrunk. So it's a very small sample size, but it is it is really fascinating. And it's, it's in the 63 Up is in cinemas now, um, but all of the other movies are available on Amazon Prime and BritBox and it's definitely a project that's worth looking at. Oh, interesting. Uh, Nicole, what do you have? Okay, so I would like to recommend a book series by this author, Dorinda Jones. That's D-A-R-Y-N-D-A. And the series is called um, Charlie Davidson Series. And it is about a woman who is a sort of grim reaper. Um, and so she is able to see dead people and help them, um, you know, finish their last task or if there's something that they need to do or if they're trying to tell you something or whatever. She helps them with that and then she helps them transition to wherever they need to go. But um, it turns out that maybe she is actually the grim reaper. And... <laughs> Maybe I don't. I guess I gave it away, but um, but you know, there's also a, a romance element where this being has been kind of a guardian angel for her, but maybe he's from hell, and um, wow, <laughs> and so he's like been traveling through lifetimes and people and like possessing people in order to be you know around her and protect her and all this kind of stuff, and so there are um about. 13. I think the, the oh. series stopped after 13 books. And the first book is called First Grave on the Right. And then the second one is like Second Grave on the Left. And then <laughs> it keeps going on and on. So the, you know, the number of whatever book number in the series is in the title. Um, and it's just a really good light read. I don't want to say light because I don't I don't want to dismiss it. But if you're into paranormal romances and, you know, little thrillers with like some heaven and hell angel demon kind of stuff that's also very funny because she's very sarcastic and witty um i recommend this so the charlie davidson series by dorinda jones wow you really gave a convincing elevator <laughs> um marcia what do you have i am going to recommend a book that shared a birthday oh. with my book um stephanie jones rogers is a professor of history at uc berkeley her book came out in paperback last week and it was called They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners mm. in the American South. And as we prepare for Black History Month, there are some standards that people will read and I hope they consider this book that looks at the intricate relationship between white women slaveholders and the Southern economy. And I think it's an important book to think about how people from various positions upheld the system of inequality 
And I think it can help better inform the ways that we talk about racial solidarity and feminism today. I remember when that book first came out, um, Rebecca Onion wrote a review of it on Slate. It's The headline is Equal Opportunity Evil, mm-hmm. if you want to look for that. I remember thinking the book sounded really good. Um, I'm going to recommend a series on Showtime, which is really cornering the market mm-hmm. on queer television right now. The show is called Work in Progress. It airs right after the L Word Generation Q on Sunday nights. It is a sort of like auto fiction, I guess, or a little bit of a, a fictionalized adaptation of the life of the creator, Abby McEnany, who's a comedian um, and an incredibly gifted actress. It's about a woman in middle age in Chicago, a, a queer woman who begins dating a trans man half her age. And she's dealing with OCD and anxiety and changes in her own biological family. The show is just incredibly sweet, sort of unrealistically sweet in a way that I appreciate. It's laugh-out-loud funny, and I would say it's a very good companion watch to The L Word Generation Q because unlike The L Word, this show is full of real-looking people, you know, (laughs) women in middle age who look like they're in middle age and people who aren't (laughs) super thin, and, and it grapples a lot more with sort of intergenerational differences when Abby's friend group and the friend group of Chris, who's the guy that she's dating, you know, try to understand each other. And it's a really uh, empathetic and also funny look at mental illness. Um, I can't recommend it enough. Again, it's called Work in Progress, starring and uh, created by Abby McEnany. And uh, Lily Wachowski is also involved in the production. Um Yeah, you all should watch it. All right, that's the end of our show. Thank you so much to Lindsay Cradwell, who produced this episode, to Rachel Allen, our production assistants, and Rosemary Belson, who provided production assistance in D.C. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening.